Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two longtime friends, Ryan Delk, CEO of Omni, and Jared Fleisler, COO of Scribd. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. So Ryan, you joined Omni when it was the you know, first five, first 10 people. Jared, when you joined when it was 100 or so people. How do you guys think about the COO role? How startups uh, are hiring them earlier and earlier stages of when a COO makes sense? Let's talk about the role. I think about the CEO role as a, uh, a compliment to the CEO. So I think it's totally dependent on what dynamics and strengths exist from the CEO. And so I think companies that have really strong operational COOs might not need to hire a CEO or CEOs might not need to hire a COO for a long time, but companies that have a CEO who might be more, more, you know, interested or focused on fundraising or marketing or, um, I mean, you could list anything there, product might really quickly find leverage, uh, in a COO. So I think. Maybe the, the one thing I think people do too often is assume that a COO does this like very specific thing at every company. And I found that it's, uh, Jared and I are actually remarkably similar, but almost every other COO I meet does something completely different. Yeah. I had a candidate the other day accuse me of being the quarterback at the company. And I think that can be one role that the COO performs sort of driving pace and energy and direction of where are we going? What plays are we going to make? You know, how do we get there? Who's on first? You know, who's going to run that? So I think that can be a really important role that COOs play. It's amazing to me, having watched Silicon Valley over the last 15 years or so, there didn't really used to be COOs in the past. The CEOs were expected to do a lot of that job. And over time, I think we're finding that there are different people that are just good at different things. And sometimes the things that make you great at choosing those goals, setting the pace, figuring out how you're going to scale, what resources you're going to need, those might be a very different skill set. Uh, from the person who's the CEO or the founder who's setting the long-term vision. I often use a term that CEOs need to be untethered by reality and CEOs are actually the exact opposite. They need to be tethered by reality. They need to understand how does everything that they do impact everything that they want the company to be able to accomplish. And so it's very difficult to just turn off that part of your brain and go, okay, let's think about the future. And it doesn't matter what things cost and it doesn't matter how many people we need. Uh, and it's similarly very difficult for people that are great at that to sit down and go, okay, well, how many hours is it going to take to do this? How many people are we going to need? We're only going to be able to accomplish half of our roadmap. Are we doing the right set of things? Have we rice them appropriately? And so I think you want those compliments and it depends on the organization, as Ryan said, for how much and how broad is the COO versus how many other skill sets do you bring in and what does the CEO own? Are they more product driven, marketing driven, uh, outside driven, depending on the stage of your company and on that individual? And how do we think about stage? So Ryan, you joined super early. How, how do you think about being COO, you know, and you didn't start day one as CEO, but uh, so early on and as the company scales, how does your role scale and evolve as well? It's a good question. So when I joined, I was actually working on growth and BD and then took over the product team and then became COO over the course of about two and a half years. I think early on, it actually 
can be detrimental to have a CEO and a COO. I think early stage companies, you want basically the founder. I mean, it's fine if it's a founder as the COO, but I think you definitely early on, you want everyone, you want to create as little management, as little layers as possible. And I think for us, we were a very operations uh, heavy company. And so um, there was a lot of literal physical operations and logistics that needed to be done. And there was also the company operations. And so there's just a lot of work to be done on that front, resourcing against goals, figuring out what the team should look like, figuring out who we needed to hire, where the gaps were. Um, and so there's a lot of work to be done potentially earlier in the life cycle of Omni than there would have been in a pure software-based company. Yeah. Uh, I mean, similarly, I guess, I think that there are probably four crossover roles with the COO. So you have head of product, head of revenue, head of marketing, and head of operations. And so it depends who else you have on that team and what the needs are of that company. But those are kind of the crossover points. And then depending on you and your personality and what your experience is and where you want to spend your time as a COO, you might be doing all of those things and you might have director level folks or below that are reporting to you in each of those functions, or you may decide that you're not going to sprint on any of them and that you're actually going to be kind of the glue between those teams. I think early on, you're supposed to be doing more of those roles. It's very odd to go into a company even at 200 people and have them have a chief product officer, a CRO, a CMO, you know, all these different C-level roles. So the question is like, can you go in and can you be the padding between that team and where the company is trying to go long term? Can you be the strategic insight that helps lift those other folks independent of what role they're in and what level they're at uh, to help them outperform? I think as the company goes on, you start to specialize and you sort of pick one of those swim lanes where you spend more and more of your time. What I find is I sprint on one area and I kind of go in uh, whatever is the most on fire at the moment. And I spend a bunch of time there, generally help with recruiting, uh, help think through the policy. So it's like, hey, are we doing something that we shouldn't be doing? Should we be thinking about this in a longer term perspective? And I have the benefit of not owning the area. So if I go into HR, which I spend a lot of time in HR and recruiting, I'm not the one who has to own who we work with as benefits providers or what our comp structures are or what the tiers and rankings are. I have to inform those things, but ultimately that's owned by those individual groups. So I try to go in and help them think about it, make sure that we're aligned and kind of set them on the right path. And then I zoom out and try to give as much accountability, ownership, and autonomy to the people that are running those functions that are in it day in and day out. And I zoom into the next thing. And over time, I'll hire more and more senior people. And I expect I become, I joke, like I want to become a bumblebee where I jump from flower to flower or group to group and just try to help people and be more and more of the glue where I can help them zoom out and think about what's going on across the company. And then they can go zoom in and really just nail it and be an expert in their individual areas. In some sense, does it feel like a a board member who's super active? Um, yeah, I mean, similar, like from the venture days, I definitely had moments of this where I would be on a board and they'd say, oh, we're trying to think through our product strategy for next year. And we'd do a half-day sprint and it would be awesome. And I'd feel like I was the chief product officer for the day. And then I'd zoom back out. But in those moments, the person who was most senior in that company thinking about product was still largely thinking about it within the four walls of that company. Because you're so heads down when you're focused in an operational role Whereas I think the benefit of where you should aspire to be is that you basically, as a C-level officer at a company, in the fullness of time, you should own nothing directly. You should try to give your team everything that you can. There is always some set of a hundred or a thousand things that no one owns that needs to happen, that needs to get done, of new things, whatever it might be, that there's no direct ownership over. And it's your job basically to be the janitor, to make sure that everything gets done, nothing falls through the cracks. 
whether you can delegate that, assign it out. But I think the desire that people have and that they have to transition into when they become a COO is that they have to start letting go of that idea that I run a function, I run an area, and this is mine, and start to empower other people and, and just support them in up-leveling their thinking and being a thought partner to them. I would say one of the hardest things, actually, for me, and you may have, you had a jump in venture, but maybe similarly jumping from Square, for me was going from this world where you're basically judged on the output of yourself or your team or your org or a very specific set of KPIs and moving from a world where you translate it, you know, in that world, you translate basically motivation into effort, into outcomes and results of a very specific set of things. And it's generally correlated with your effort on those things. You move into a C-level role or at a larger company, maybe a VP role, and that, that math starts to fall apart. And the inputs and the outputs actually need to look very different. And your job is really to maximize the wins of your teams. And so for me, and you, my whole team would tell you this, like the transition for me was a lot of learning that and figuring out where I can dive in and help maximize the wins for them or minimize the losses for them if something's off track and learning to tame that muscle of sort of wanting to dive in directly or, you know, jump on something specifically or, Hey, I can just stay up till 2am and get this done for you. Like there are times when that's helpful and it's a really powerful motivator to say, Hey, I'm going to work all night and get this done for you. I'm going to stay at the office with you, whatever. Like those things can be really powerful. Um, but that should be a, a tool that's seldom used and that shouldn't be the gut instinct. And I think a lot of people that move from sort of high performance roles in a startup into a C-level role have to learn to tame that and actually let your team really shine and spend all of your time empowering them uh, instead of time trying to directly contribute to anything. How do you assess whether you're doing a good job or how do you think about personal accountability? Uh, I'm still learning a lot. Uh, I would say I rely on my team pretty heavily on that. So every one-on-one, lots of feedback cycles, lots of feedback loops. And I all, I'm constantly asking for how can I remove blockers? How can I empower you better? You know, what are ways that I can dive in and help, you know, shift things around for you so you can be more effective. And I get a lot of feedback from them on that front. And that's probably the, the number one gauge for me is we have an incredible group of VPs that own product growth, engineering, uh, operations and expansion. And, um, they're my litmus test. You know, right. there's a lot of trust built up there. And what blockers are you typically removing? It could be recruiting related. Hey, we need to, we need to bring in a director of this or a head of this to report into a team. It's a key hire. Uh, you know, we're not, the funnel's not building fast enough. Can you spend a few hours and help us, you know, figure out how we can move faster here? It could be legal related. Hey, we're trying to figure out this partnership. Can you help this, help us think through a structure to simplify this so we can move quicker through legal HR related? Hey, we're trying to figure out how to, you know, get performance reviews out in a way that's going to be unique and incredible and make people really excited to, to be involved in performance reviews at Omni. It's, I think it's, it's really up to them on what they need help with or what they need accelerated. But I think part of being a COO, like it's kind of the bumblebee analogy is like, you have to be able to dive into all those things and be uh, effective at them because you're you're spending a lot of your time jumping from thing to thing to thing, and your goal is empowerment or or maximizing the win of your team. I mean, I think these are really good questions. I think the point that Ryan made is absolutely the right one. It's the biggest struggle where you're used to putting an hour of of effort in, and the better and better you get you get a better understanding of what that will yield, you know, what kind of work product you get out of that hour of effort. In most IC roles, that's the case. As you move from an individual contributor to a manager, this is where people really start to struggle and they get accused of being micromanagers because generally startups promote people that are great ICs to become managers. And just because they're really great at doing something doesn't mean they're great at teaching other people or inspiring other people or motivating other people or guiding other people to do it. And there is some crossover, right? It's really hard also to give people that guidance if you don't know how to do it yourself. But you're looking for that skill set as an IC and then this other kind of mystery ingredient of being a great manager and leader and mentor. And so then when you go into this COO role, it's like the ultimate 
crazy version of that because now you're context switching every single hour. You're doing something wildly different and you're managing the most senior people you've ever managed. So now you have to learn this new set, new skill set of managing senior managers of other people. Those senior managers you're having a coaching guide on how they are managing and the extent to which they are involved. Then you need to hold them accountable, but you have to make sure that you're not doing a new form of micromanagement, which is like micromanaging their management. And it's this very weird thing, right? They need to be able to develop their own culture and their own way of getting work done within their team, their own set of motivations. And you still have to come in and remind them and give them more resources and ammo and ability to kind of up-level what they're doing in their team. So I think this it's this whole new set of ways that you spend your time. Venture capital was kind of like a crazy whiplash to this and that it is the most extreme version of you don't put an hour in and get an hour of work product out. You can work a hundred hours a week. That does not mean that you're investing in the next Uber. Like there's absolutely almost zero correlation between those two things. So I feel like I got this unsettled training, you know, in doing that. And I came in and this feels actually more comfortable. Like, Hey, I actually get more work product out when I, when I work more. So it feels more comfortable, but I think measuring it then becomes really difficult because you're trying to take you know, I spent 20 hours last week on compensation bands. Was that the right use of time? Uh, I don't know. Like, do people feel more rewarded? What if you spent those 20 hours, but you did a really bad job communicating it? The hours spent were actually the right thing to do, but your communication layer sucked and therefore nobody appreciated it, right? So it, you really have to be critical of this. The number one thing I look for is just how often am I surprised? Generally, my job is to make sure that like I'm the oil in the machine, that things are going smoothly. If I walk into a meeting that I'm supposed to be running and I don't know what the topics are and I don't know what we're talking about and it feels like it's going off the rails and it doesn't feel like it's kind of following a pattern that I want, that is a really bad sign for me that like, hey, I'm not doing my job. And if there's a bunch of people that don't know what's going on or they're unclear about our goals or they're unclear about where I'm going or or what we're doing or why we're spending time in a certain area, those are all signs to me that something is breaking down and, and I'm not doing my job. So I think you start to get these like softer feels for when you're doing things really well and things are gelling, how little do people need you and how much are things just kind of working? And when they're not, and when you're getting pulled into lots of things and people are asking for clarification, then you're probably not doing enough of the pre-work of communicating what we're doing, why we're doing it, how we're measuring success. And you've got to step back and really dig into those areas. And you're probably getting too distracted by the old, like I see stuff that you're used to doing of saying, Hey, I sprinted on this thing and I got a bunch of work product done. I did a great job last week. That doesn't matter if half the team doesn't know why they're doing what they're doing, right? And you got to prioritize that. In some ways, I think it's it's almost like an art of learning. I was actually talking to a, a VP of product about this today, was which was basically sort of checking in on like the fidelity of how how involved you are, and you're sort of zooming in and out constantly. I think as a COO, and part of our, part of our job is like to to be never be surprised and to be informed, and you have to sort of make this call on like how how much into the details do you want to get, and then. And once you make that call, are you passively or actively involved? Are you giving feedback? Are you, you know, wanting to talk about it in one-on-ones or do you want to just sort of say, Hey, this is all great. Like we're running this. This looks great. And so I think something that's been really valuable for me is constantly checking in on sort of that, um, the, the, how far you're zooming in and out and when, because when you find an instance where you're, you zoom in on something and you realize, Hey, there's some tension here or there's not alignment or the product team doesn't understand the growth team's goals or you sense those things. Like that's your job. You got to find those things and you got to close that gap. But in order to do that, you have to sort of nail this art of like when to zoom in and when to zoom out. And I think that's one of the hardest things is you have, if you hire like 
I'm very, very thankful that our executive team is unbelievable. Like these are, these are some of the best people in the world at what they do. Uh, and when you hire those people, like you want to let them run, like it's, that's the number one thing you can do to help them win. And so it's this balance of sort of zooming in and out and knowing when and how to do that in a way that still makes them feel empowered and not, uh, not micromanaged. Sometimes I, I talk about that as like pressure point feedback, right? So you think about if you go to get a massage or you go to a chiropractor or a physical therapist, they can like work all over your body and try to find the spots. And you're like, okay, I, maybe they know what they're doing or maybe they just happen upon a spot that was a problem versus there's some magic when they're like, hmm, and they rub their hand on your back once and then they push on one area. You're like, wow, you know, and, and it's like they knew that it was there. They sensed it. That's what our job is, right? We should be able to give pressure point feedback. It is not our job to come up with the solution. It's to point out when there's a problem and then to help partner on coming up with a solution. But we're not the experts spending all of our time in that space or in that vertical or working on that problem. And so if you can find that pressure point feedback and you can give that and kind of just drive awareness, then you can hopefully help them if they need your help to come up with a better solution. But half the time it's just saying like, Hey, what about this thing over here? Have you thought about this? And I go, Oh man, I, I meant to think about that. I forgot, you know, and, and that's most of what we're doing. Yeah. Do you have any other, uh, non-obvious frameworks around communication, whether it comes to goals or vision or principles that the other COOs or leaders should be thinking about? Yeah. You know, one of the things, so we survey our company every year and we ask for feedback on a pretty regular basis. We also do coaching. Uh, we do 360s on people. So I use, that because the more senior you get, I think people forget in your own mind, you kind of never age and you know, you never become more senior. You're never afraid to talk to yourself or give yourself feedback. But as you get more and more senior, people start to fear you and they start to communicate not in a dishonest way intentionally, but just in a filtered way. And so you hear less open and honest feedback. And so you can't depend on the same channels and information that you used to. And so I think if you can recognize that and have awareness around it, then you start to say, okay, well, how am I doing? If I just ask someone that, they're probably not going to tell me 100% of what's going to help me get better at that. And so you do things like anonymous 360s and you collect unsolicited feedback and you start to do pressure testing with people that don't report into you to hear what they're hearing in the organization, right? And you really, you really need to be introspective because the decisions you're making and the words that you're saying have such a broad impact on the company. I think this is true for CEOs as well. It's particularly true for CEOs because they're making decisions that impact so much of the operations and where time and energy is being spent. And it's really important that if there's a growing mutiny of people that just don't believe in the direction that you're going, that you know about that. Most often that's caused because you've done a bad job communicating why you're going in that direction and getting people on board with it. So I think you have to like figure out how do you build that truth system for getting real honest feedback in? How do you listen to that? It doesn't mean you should just do what people are telling you you need to do. Most of it is around confusion and clarifying and communicating where you're coming from and then figure out how do you check in on that on a regular basis. Yeah. And when you find yourself coaching senior managers, it's common feedback you find yourself giving or how, what do great manager, senior managers do that maybe good senior managers don't do? I think a lot of this has to do around communication. I think the, the things that you spend your time on as you get more and more senior tend to be around how people feel about the work that they're doing versus the work itself. And it's amazing what you will get out of people, how much they'll be bought in, how excited they'll be. If they understand what they're doing, they understand the why, they understand the importance, and they feel excited about it. 
think another big piece of this is around ownership. So I think really great senior managers think about it as, hey, there's the most exciting things going on, and I'm in a position where I can either take those for myself or I can give those to other people. The very best managers give those to other people. They reward with work itself and with responsibility. And that kind of ownership is the most compelling form of compensation that you can give somebody. It says, I believe in you. It says, I trust you. It says that I want to see what you're capable of. Uh, and people always run at this by, those run at this by throwing money and stock options and titles. And those things are good and you need to use those, but they're in a system where the most sustainable organic thing you can do is say, you did an amazing job. Let me give you even more rope. And I think the most senior managers recognize that and they're constantly looking for those opportunities. And the last one is just kind of like on the style of communication. Something I spend a lot of time doing is figuring out how can I do a better job listening? How can I do a better job communicating around conflict? I feel like I role play a lot with my senior most managers. Um, I help them think through the stickiest problems that they're navigating in their org. And a lot of this is how is their team going to feel when they're hearing negative feedback, when they're dealing with conflict, when they're letting their team know that we're going to cut something. You know, these are the difficult conversations to have and the best managers are just exceptional at it. Two things I would add to that and to expand on what Jared said. One thing that I've learned recently is bringing in really great execs that to sort of double down on the communication point is they spend the, they spend the time to do the extra revs to go from understanding something to actually having extreme clarity of thought and then being able to communicate it. And so it's one thing to figure out, Hey, our team should resource against this or our team should do this or our team should go build this thing or whatever, whatever the decision is. And then there's like another 10% of work, which is like to spend the time thinking about that before you actually share it out to create this like incredible clarity of thought that you can actually communicate that in a way that's compelling, simple, easy to understand. And what I think good managers do is they, they come up with the right answer and then they communicate that out. Great managers spend that extra hour or two hours, whatever the time is, and actually sort of kind of coalesce around this incredible clarity of what exactly the direction is. They've distilled it down to the most important parts and they communicate it with a ton of conviction. And then what happens is that that actually creates, I found like an order of magnitude more buy-in. So it's like 10% more time, but the impact is like two or three X what, what people were basically would have done before because they get, they, there's so much, you know, so much more buy-in, so much understanding and so much more excitement about it. And then the other thing, I think this is a Kevin Hart's thing originally, but to, to, to double down on what Jared said was, I think great managers keep expanding the areas of responsibility of someone as they, as they drive wins for the company kind of over and over and over and over again until they break. And that's been something that I've seen happen at Omni really successfully. Um, and I want to keep seeing happening. It's like, you, you can actually do that way faster than you think. And most people like wait for like a, a review cycle or like a promotion or whatever. And if you have someone who's like crushing everything they're just like keep giving them more stuff and they're going to love it. And then eventually they get to a breaking point and you have a conversation and you sit down and you, you can sort of recover. But that's actually really good to get to the breaking point because you found mutually where their limits are and then where the growth areas are from there. We want to, we want to get tactical in this episode. Let's talk a bit about org structure. So Ryan, you know, you're at Omni in the first five, first 10 employees. How do you think about org structure as it expands and how you innovate or don't innovate on it? Uh, so we don't innovate at all on it. I want our org structure to be as simple as possible. I want it to be easy to understand. I want there to be. Uh, there's no dotted line reporting. Everyone has a very clear manager. Um, and that's not to say there aren't times for these things, but we have, there's a sketch file that has the uh, org chart in it. And I, every time we make a new hire, they get added to it. It's kind of nice. It shows levels. It shows everything. Um, you can glance at it and understand exactly who reports to two, who's the teams, who owns what. And so I'm a big believer in a transparency. So it's super clear to everyone who owns what, who manages who, especially in a small company. Um, this probably gets harder at, at script size, but then um, also just making it as simple as 
possible. I don't think it's, I, I personally don't believe that there's a lot of value, um, maybe in super complicated companies that are running like two or three products or something. Maybe it makes sense. But for most companies, I think, you know, founders and exec teams that spend time trying to come up with some crazy new org chart that they think is going to like unlock whatever the next like value for the company, you just spend all that time on product and growth and those things. Um, so we keep it super, super simple. And when do you instill management? Because in the beginning, it's the founders, maybe it's the first business hire, first product person. Like when, when do you instill that sort of levels? I think it's the breaking point thing. I mean, you need the manager, you need some managers, like everyone reports to CEO at first and then you add some management. But I think like individual, you know, great VPs or great directors or great whoever at early stage companies can manage a lot of people. And so I don't think you have to go in and, you know, every time someone, some companies will say like, oh, once you have four direct reports or six direct reports or eight direct reports, you immediately get, you know, there's another layer that's added. I don't think you need to do that. Um, I think it's based on, you know, the executive and based on how they feel and, and in terms of their own abilities. But I think it's about, it's a leverage thing. And so if you can find a way to free up more leverage for them by, by instilling a manager underneath them or by instilling a new level. But I would say take adding levels super seriously because that's a big deal. And the nice thing about making the org chart really simple is you can actually see how big of a deal it is. Cause you like, you know, move half the people up and half the people down and you add this new le- level in. And I think that's a really big deal for companies. And I think that you should not just willy nilly add like senior director, blah, blah, blah. Like, like take those things super seriously. And we can talk about titles in a little bit, but I think that you want in general, like as few of levels as possible, it's easy to understand. Um, and it's clear responsibility and accountability. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's interesting. If you look at the average startup, there's probably something like five levels by the time you reach 50 people, you know, you've got these people at varying skill sets. Uh, you probably have some C-level officers. You probably have some directors. You probably have some managers. You have some senior ICs and you have some ICs. Well, we just got to five levels. And if you look at Google, there are eight levels, right? So Google has like probably over a hundred thousand people at this point, And they have eight levels. Now, granted, they separate out their management track and their IC track, but it's still not exactly a linear increase from where you start. And so you have to think about where do you add in these levels? When do you bring those people in and what does that do to the rest of the organization? I think it's a really difficult conversation that everyone has to have because you can be the CEO of anything today. Unfortunately, that may be like a CEO of a pie shop because you like making pies and the pie shop is an N of one and it's just you. Like you can be the CEO if you want to. And when you come into another company, you have to look at how big is that company today? Where are they going? What assets do they bring to bear? What's the uh, value of the rest of the team that you're working with? Whatever that might be. And so for a lot of people, we have these releveling conversations when they come from a big company or they come from a small company and they're moving into a new role. I think you just have to be able to have that openly and honestly. I think people use ambiguous titles, which is okay early on. Um, so it's probably better to use an ambiguous title like head of versus senior director or director, because that has a very explicit meaning in the outside world. Head of, you can be the head of a group of two people, and that could still be a junior manager or a senior manager, right? And so you assess where should I slot this person when the team gets large enough that I have to make that decision? And I think it's okay to kick that can down down the road a bit. I agree with Ryan. I don't really think most companies should innovate on org structure unless there's some fundamental reason, which I can't imagine at the moment. Um, but I, I'm sure there's some example case that goes against this. But unless you're doing something wildly different, I think you should probably make as few things in your business complicated as need to be. It turns out it's actually just really complicated to run a company and be successful and beat all the odds as is. So I'd rather focus on that. And I think on the management side, you have to ask yourself, you're generally the person making the decision. If you're the CEO or the founder or the CEO or whoever you might be, you have to ask yourself, how much distance is there between where we are today and where I think we can be? 
And how much time am I willing to spend on getting us there? And am I the right person to get us there? I think if you ask yourself those three questions and you find that there's a really large distance between where you are and you want to, and where you'd like to go, and you think that that will deliver significant value for the company, either you need to be committed to doing that and delivering that and getting the company there, or you need to find somebody that will do that. That could be because you're not good at it, because you don't have the time to do it, or it could just be you have a hundred other things on your plate and you want to hire somebody who's an expert at it where they can uniquely do that. Um, I think the question you should always ask yourself as a senior member at a small company or a large company is how much time are you spending doing things that only you can do? And how much time are you spending doing things that other people could do? And the more time that you're spending doing things that only you can do, the higher leverage your activities are going to be. And you're probably making everybody in the company a lot happier for not going into their sandboxes. And you should frankly be hiring people that are better than you at their verticals because they're going to do a better job. How do you think about uh, the things that only you can do in the realm of hiring? Like what, what is the best leverage use of your time? Sure. So I think recruiting and hiring is probably the most important thing that exists. Uh, last year, we grew by 93%. So we almost doubled our team. Choosing the right key people who are going to build teams around themselves is the single highest leverage thing I can do because those people are going to be responsible for maintaining all of their employees' happiness, for bringing in additional talent, for increasing. When you think about growing the pie, you know the most important thing you have as a company are the people and what they have between their ears and their ability to choose really good people that you aren't going to interview, that you're not going to screen is absolutely critical. That controls how big the pie becomes. When you hire a bad manager or even a bad IC, it can just be poison in the well. One or two really bad people can actually poison your entire company's culture. So I think you have to be very, very careful. This is like letting strangers into your house. You know, you, you want to know that you trust them. You want to know that you feel comfortable with them. But it's like letting strangers into the control room of your house, you know, like it, or into the safe of your house. It's, it's even more like you're so vulnerable. There's really just an in and an out. There's not like a containment field around new employees where, oh, well, we don't give them access to the code base for 30 days or they can't access user accounts or they can't do this. Like generally they get set up with accounts and like they're just, they're on, they're in, you know, like. They now work at your company. When they say things, people think they're an official statement of your company. So, so you have to recognize the responsibility that comes with that. This weekend, I had a call with a senior search engineer that we were talking to um, that we were interested in having join our team. And questions like, should I have done that? Right? Like, should the rest of the team been talking to this person and considering if we should have him join? trying to close him, trying to communicate the value of the company. And yes, I think that's a really good use of my time to close senior talent, particularly really difficult talent for us to get. I think that the areas that this person's going to be working on are incredibly impactful to the business. And so I'm happy to carve out time to spend with that individual to make sure both that they're the right fit and that they're thinking about the right things um, and to make sure that they feel comfortable and they know what they're signing up for. Now, the next time we hire someone, on that entire team, I probably will never talk to them. I will probably never have the opportunity in their recruiting process to be part of that conversation. So I would love if this is going to become a 20 person team that I can create the leverage from spending a bunch of time upfront with the person that's going to be building it. And so I think that's what you have to think about is like, 
What are the most impactful roles that are going to shape the rest of your organization? How do you make sure that you're involved in every single one of those? And then how do you play the quarterback role of helping to close candidates, communicate equity, things that are a little bit more complicated that maybe your individual hiring managers may not be as conversant in? How do you make sure that you're there to unblock them so that you don't lose really amazing candidates just because it's not the specific skill set of the hiring manager to communicate an area of the business that they want to know about? Yeah. Yeah, I would say... um Basically every, I mean, I'm, I'm personally, I was personally involved in every single, personally ran the process for every single exec we've hired. I, I think that's like absolutely critical. I think the, I've heard of companies that just kind of completely outsource the process. And I'm not saying don't work with an external recruiter, but like you, this is, these are like the most, these people are going to be defining what the future of your company looks like. And one thing at Omni, a language that we use at Omni for anyone who's director or VP or above is that they need to be a talent magnet. So when we look for these people, like, part of what we're screening for is like when we bring you onto the team, are there going to be multiple really smart, talented people that are going to want to work here because you work here? And then maybe people, you know, there may be people that you don't know, but we've, we've had that time and time again with these exec hires we've made where, um, you know, they join and then you see this sort of influx of people that are applying, you know, hire VP of product. And then all of a sudden your product manager pipeline just explodes because there's all these people that want to work with her or work with him. And I think those types of dynamics are really, really important to think about because, then you can spend a bunch of time recruiting the VP and then trust them to go build out this 20 person team. That's going to be unbelievable. Um, and the other thing that I do is I tap my network a lot. So I think, so basically all of our execs know that anytime there's a role that they're hiring for, they're even having trouble with the pipeline or recruiters aren't delivering or whatever. They can escalate it to me and I'll block an hour and a half on a Friday night and just sit there and just go basically like go through my network and go get intros to people and help find great candidates, especially for someone who's going to be leading a function or head of paid acquisition or head of growth or whatever those roles are. And so I think being super involved in hiring, I spend 25 to 30% of my time just on recruiting and I, I probably wish it spend even more. Um, and so I think that's incredibly important. I think and that's everything from building systems to screening candidates to sourcing. Yeah. Most of the internal stuff is building systems, but the, but it's like figuring out, you know, how are we getting these high leverage hires and how can we, how can we tap our network to, you know, get people in the door that might not, you know, come in and bound organically, those types of things. The only thing I would add in there is Ryan brings up this really important point about networks. I think that we forget it's the same thing of like forgetting your age or forgetting your seniority or any of that. Kind of forget that once you spent a long time here, you've met a bunch of people, you've learned a bunch of things, you know, a bunch of companies. And this is the most important thing. I believe when you're thinking about hiring a CLO that they have a network and this isn't about like a Rolodex of people they can just call up and recruit. You know, I, I think sure there's some people that are going to know that they can bring to your team. This is actually them just knowing where they have gaps or where they have experts that they can access to make better decisions without having to take the time to decide that decision from scratch. And this happens in everything we do. You know, Ryan and I trade notes all the time. And if he's looked at 10 vendors and ran a process for a month, I understand how he thinks we talk about these types of things. I might as well draft off of that and say, hey, who are your top two or three vendors? And I can spend a fraction of the time and make as good of a decision as he made without having to go redo all that work myself. This is, I always say, you know, when I left venture, I was debating moving to Africa and, you know, connecting with entrepreneurs there and building community. And twice in the last week, I said to my CEO, you know, man, I, I just, I, I couldn't have moved to Africa. Like this wouldn't have worked. I wouldn't have been able to be as effective. And the point is like, I don't have a network there. I don't, I don't know people. I haven't been there for as long. This is everything from who we sublease space to, what vendors we work with on paid marketing, how we do our payment processing, people that we're thinking about hiring, recruiting firms we're thinking about working with, food services that we're thinking about. Like 
almost every area of our business, either I feel like I've experienced it before. We've had another company that went through this. They swept the details. We talked to them about what their learnings were, and then we use that to inform our decision. Or it's something where I know someone that has done this and I will go ask them. And the amount of time that that saves and the benefit that we get as a company for being able to draft out that. And it's not just my network. You should be doing this with every executive that you have and understanding first, hey, is there a way to have a shortcut by talking to an expert in the field? And these aren't people you can pay. Like if you don't know these people, you can't say, if you go to Ryan, you're like, hey, can I pay you for an hour of your time to get your thoughts on compensation? He's like, sorry, man, I'm, I'm running a company, but Ryan and I will spend an hour, right? Because we're both going to learn something from that. So I think this is the single most important thing you can do is cultivate your network, remember and respect those people. And one of the things I love about the Valley is like everyone is paying up for it. We're all trying to help each other. And so thinking about that as early on as you can to meet with people, try to help them with whatever fraction of the universe you've learned about and you deeply understand, that will come back to you tenfold, a hundredfold as other people do the same thing. Before getting into the nuts and bolts of exec uh, hiring, when I want to ask you just your, your thoughts on hiring generally, you know, when to hire, you know, veterans versus undiscovered talent, when to promote versus within from outside, when to hire someone who's, you know, done the role versus someone who can grow into that role. How do you think about these things? Uh, yeah, my bias is always towards internal promotions, uh, is my number one bias. So can we develop this talent internally? Do we have an all-star that we can invest in, um, you know, and, and grow her or him into that role? Then secondly would be, can we hire an undiscovered talent into this role? So is there, is there someone that I can, um, is there a set of questions or a framework that I can use to basically create a leading indicator, uh, that I can basically make a, a signal essentially that I can make a hiring decision on that I think this person can grow into this role very quickly in like a period of six months. A good example would be like if you're hiring someone who, um, for like a, you know, maybe a head of acquisition role at an early stage startup and you find someone who's really young in their career that's done some paid marketing, some SEO, some various different things. And, uh, they seem really smart and they seem, but they're maybe they're at like a big company or whatever. Um, you could, you could create a, a filter and a framework that you might be able to figure out that person could actually grow really quickly into this role. They don't need to manage anyone from day one. They could deliver results from day one. And then you think they could grow over the next six to 12 months into actually being like a team lead. And that could save you a, a ton of money, but then B create this huge win for this person because you actually gave them their shot that they grew into this key role. So that's my second bias is find undiscovered talent. And I spend a ton of my time on that. And then the third is like, sometimes you just need to hire the best person in the world at that. And I think the important piece is when you go outside, like you should be thinking about hiring the best person in the world. So like if I'm not going to find undiscovered talent or promote someone internally, I'm going to find the best person in the world at this role. And I'm going to try to recruit them and bring them in. And so we've done that with VP of engineering, uh, VP of product, um, VP of operations and, uh, it's been phenomenally successful for us. I think, um, you know, we ran a pretty rigorous process and I'm really thankful that, that it worked out because I think exact hiring can be really difficult. But, um, for me, like, I think, I think actually most startups just rely too much on recruiters and just kind of like, um, just hiring people that have already done it before. And it's really tough to win. You end up spending a ton of money. You end up competing with Facebook and Google on offers all the time. Um, and some of the best people at Omni are people that have grown over time into those roles. And no one would have hired them into that role a year ago or a year and a half ago. Um, and so I think getting good at filtering those things, um, which I know Jared also thinks a lot about, like if you can filter for someone who actually is going to be that person, um, that can save you a ton of resources as a company. I think this changes a lot as you scale. Um, so as you get bigger, it's hard, right? So let's say that I'm hiring growth for a growth role or customer acquisition role, like Ryan was saying, for a 10-person company. 
that person is going to come in and they're going to have a budget of a grand total of $10,000 to spend a month. And the risk is pretty low and they're going to be testing every new channel. We're not going to know how it's working. And if you fast forward and we're a 500 person company and we're spending $30 million a year and we're doing out of home and direct mail and television, and that person has never worked with agencies before, has no idea how mail houses work, you know, hasn't done any of it. The learning curve is going to be so long and it's going to be so difficult and they're just not going to have the ability to run that function. They're certainly not going to have confidence around it. So you're going to end up running that function, even though you're not the expert and you're trying to hire somebody to do it, but you're going to be betting on them and watching them as they scale up. So I think there's this middle ground where you have to figure out if you're doing out of home and direct mail and TV, you might hire somebody who's only done two out of the three. Maybe they don't need to be an expert in everything, but they're a rock star in those other two, and you're going to give them some room. I think you want to have a ceiling that is well above what the person has demonstrated they're capable of. And what you're betting on is, hey, do I believe that you have the foundation and some of the building blocks that will make you exceptional at this role overall? And you've proven that in some areas. The more junior you go, the less you have to be concerned if the person hasn't proven it in that exact area. But I would argue you're looking for the same psychological drivers. You know, you can talk to somebody who proved that they had a go-getter attitude and they're an overachiever and they wanted to constantly do better than what was expected of them in college, in their extracurricular activities and on their sports teams. And you may translate that into what you're wanting in a junior operations person coming out of the company. But I think you're always looking for what is that narrative um, and you want to give people room, you very rarely are hiring somebody into a role where it's, oh, yeah, I've done that a 100 times. It's going to be easy. I can do it with my eyes closed. That person's not going to be particularly motivated or excited. And so I think you have to answer that that question for yourself when you're picking the talent. You know, how in this role, how much flexibility, how high beta can this be? What do I need to know of this person? I do think the diamonds in the rough, some of the best people I've ever worked with, came in and they, you know, I had a person at Square that was an ex-consultant. He had absolutely no experience in payments, he had no experience in retail, he had no experience in major BD deals, and he did all those things for us. He did an exceptional job, right? And so taking a bet on people is good and makes sense, and you can sometimes hit it out of the park. But then the question becomes, how good are you at assessing that? And kind of how, how good do you pick apart that ex-consulting background Ask them about projects, seeing how strategic they are, seeing how much they think outside the box. And then can you apply that to new areas that they might not have worked in in the past? Yeah. Let's talk about titles. What is your approach philosophy towards titles? I think titles are massively overrated. And I think that I wouldn't necessarily say it's a negative signal if someone is overly concerned with them, but I would say it's an extremely positive signal if you have a very qualified candidate that doesn't care about them. Most of the best people that we've hired title is like the last thing that they ask about. Um, and it's because generally those people are incredibly confident in their work product and they're incredibly confident in their ability to capture the long-term upside. And they also care way less about social signaling than they do about essentially delivering value and then capturing some percentage of that value they create. There's a lot of good reasons to have titles. I think the companies that have no titles and things like that is, is taking it far too far. But I do think that um, it's easy to go overboard early on. Like when you see a company that's 10 people, it has like five C-level executives. And one of them is like a chief, I don't know, innovation officer or something at a company of eight people. It's a huge red flag. And so I think you want to keep it as simple as possible. 
I always think you want to title people. Ideally, you're titling them beneath where they should be. You're using vaguer titles, you know, when possible. Um, but I think there is the, the caveat to that, I would say, is that for people that are earlier in their career um, or really trying to make a break, um, having a legit title at a company can actually be something that is hugely valuable to them. And so I don't think you want to, you don't want to like hurt people's career prospects by saying, Hey, you can't have a product manager title or whatever. Um, I think where you get into trouble is when you're giving people a VP title when they don't, you know, there isn't really a team for them to manage, uh, or you're giving people, you know, a director title when they're an IC or things like that is where you get into trouble. Yeah. I would say those are my high level. Yeah. I think it is an incredibly complicated issue masquerading as a simple one and having an express opinion on it that like, oh, we should just get rid of titles or, oh, you know, well, we should do, we should give any, you know, titles, any one, any title they want. You know, I think either of those viewpoints is probably really irresponsible uh, and naive. And I think the reality is you have to think about these different levels and the different scenarios that you're running through. Ryan named a bunch of them. You know, if you have a really senior person coming in, and they want to feel like they have uh, a sense of progression and that they're being respected and that they're coming in at an appropriate level with an appropriate amount of responsibility. A title is a really appropriate thing to think deeply about and consider what is the best way quickly communicating what this person does, what area of ownership that they have, what they're responsible for, you know, what they should be accountable around. So in some ways, you can think of titles as being the cheapest, easiest way to create clarity in your organization. So then why would you get rid of them, right? Why would you say like, oh, it's just a mystery what Ryan does and what he's responsible for and who reports to him and what team he's on, you know, and what he owns? Like, that's probably a really bad idea. The other way, thing that I think you have to think about, titles most commonly come up in the mid to senior range and in certain functional areas that people don't want to give people. So for example, like product managers, highly controversial across the valley. Lots of people say, oh, we don't believe in PMs. Uh, we don't want to have a product organization or we don't believe in growth or we don't, you know, whatever it might be. And so they're very resistant to giving those titles. I think that's a good thing to think about is like, what functions do you want represented in your company? And what does that communicate to the rest of the company? So if I have a growth team, does that mean nobody else should think about growth? Like, should we not be worried about if our numbers are going up? Um, that's something you should think about deeply. The most common thing with titles that people forget is it happens with your junior entry level folks and they are seeking progression in their career. Whether you like it or not, most folks that are coming in that are in a junior role, average tenure at a, co at a company in Silicon Valley is 18 months. So a person is coming up and they're coming into your company and they're trying to understand, am I being respected for the work that I've done to date? Am I on a path? What is that path? What does my progression look like? And if I'm ever to leave, will I be able to continue on my career path? So you could argue that a title is the easiest way to communicate to someone. This is where I see you. This is the next level. These are the things that you need to do to get there. And those things that you need to do should be things that actually drive value in the company. Some people mistake this and say, oh, well, then you get people that become obsessed with their title and what they need to do to move their title up. It's like, well, if the things they need to do to get promoted are things you want them to do, why is that a bad thing? Why is it a bad thing to constantly remind them of that and to give them progression towards that? People are seeking that progression. I had a junior person that worked for me at Square, and I remember we would have one-on-ones on a weekly basis, and he actually sat two desks down from me. And I remember one of the things when I asked him for feedback was, hey, I just wish you gave me more feedback on a more regular basis. I said, well, wh what is it that you're expecting? He's like, well, we only meet once a week, and I only talk to you a few times a day. And I, I thought to myself, like, how in the world would I run 
a huge part of the company and communicate with you more often than that. And what I realized is that his starting point was coming out of college where he got grades on every paper, feedback on every assignment. The teacher spoke to him every day after class if he wanted to. And so you have to remind yourself, even if you haven't been in that position in 20 years, this is where the vast majority of your staff is, right? And so you have to be empathetic to that. You have to understand the journey that they're on. They have one job. They have one title, you know, this, they have one life and you need to meet their needs in their career, not get into this concept around, oh, I'm managing this organization and I, I think we should have this different org structure. That's probably not the high order bit if you want people to focus on the work. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, the other piece on titles that's important is like internal clarity is incredibly important. And these organizations that take, it's like, you know, a completely flat company or we have no titles or whatever, every variant of that, you're not prioritizing internal clarity and internal operational excellence because you're inherently creating vagueness around very important things. Like what is this person responsible for? And so I've actually gone both ways where there's people that I've titled up from what the initial JD might've been because of who they were coming in as and where we're going to do a reorg around them or that what I wanted them to own because I wanted to make it super clear to the company. Hey, this person is like a, a top leader at the company that was going to be responsible for delivering these results. And we want them to come in and have that be extremely clear to the team. And conversely, you can get into, you know, a, another negative situation where you overtitle someone and then they come in and people are like, Hey, this doesn't match up. Like this, like one of these is not like the other. You have this level at the company of directors or VPs or whatever. And all these make sense. But this one person, you know, they, this doesn't, this doesn't add up. They have one direct report or they, uh, whatever the, whatever the example you want to pull is. And that can start to erode trust in you as the COO or the CEO or the board or whoever. Um, it starts to erode this organizational trust. And so you don't, you don't ever want to do anything wrong by someone for their career. You want to give them what they need to progress and you want to be really empathetic to that. But I think prioritizing, making sure that you're not creating any internal sort of frustrations or vagueness is maybe, you know, the best filter to use for this because you'll, you'll end up doing well by them and you'll also prioritize the team uh, and the clarity there. One extreme example on, on the VC side is in Jason Harwitz in terms of everyone being a, a partner there. And now they, they've sort of segmented talent partner and marketing partners. You sort of have an idea and you have an people, if you know, you know, who's the general partner and who's that everybody else isn't. It's interesting how that has both been confusing deliberately, it seems, but then also has allowed them to maybe in some cases get great people that they wouldn't otherwise. Oh, totally has. Yeah. I mean, that's, I don't think that's debatable. I think they've gotten unbelievable people that they would have never been able to get. Right. Yeah. And, and I think this is a good example of a non, you know, sort of a very specific organization. Probably the most important thing in venture capital is to be able to get an external meeting. If your title is partner versus junior associate, your conversion rate on getting those meetings is much higher. So it's like optimized for the high order bit. When you're in a company, you're optimizing. I a hundred percent agree with what Ryan's saying. You are optimizing for clarity in your company around ownership, accountability, and execution. So do that, right? When you're in venture capital, you're optimizing for figuring out how do I make sure I get ultimate exposure that I meet with these folks. And secondarily, depending on the organization, it may or may not be run like a traditional business where you're executing, trying to build out teams, but you're also generally working with significantly more senior and experienced folks that may have less concern about that, be less worried about their career progression and other things that actually are really core and fundamental to 90 plus percent of the people that are in your org. Yep. Let's talk about comp. How do you guys think about comp from a philosophical perspective, um, tactical perspective, and from a how you communicate it perspective? So we're at very different stages of companies. So Omni is, uh, is much smaller than, than Scribd. I would say 
at a high level, I think probably the, the thing people talk about the most is like the blend of cash and equity, how to think about equity. A lot of people on Twitter would say, are saying things like, you know, just assume all equity is worthless all the time. And, you know, that other people are saying, hey, this, that's actually the only way to get this sort of asymmetric upside. Don't focus on salary. I think it's a healthy debate. Um, I think one at a high level, I think um, my framework is that the fact that there's an opportunity cost on sort of a short term basis for joining an early stage company is a feature, not a bug. And I think companies that try to pay the sort of exorbitant market rate salaries and compete with Facebook and Google uh, for talent uh, as a three-person company are actually, it's, that's actually a really poor decision to make. And everyone should make a living salary. I'm not saying like people should have to, you know, take on a ton of sacrifice, but, um, you do want people to say, Hey, I care enough about this vision to join this early stage company that I'm willing to basically take this opportunity cost of less, less short-term cash compensation because I believe, uh, in this equity. And I think over time, as you become a larger company, you essentially want to be closing that gap. And so the gap might be really large for your first three hires. Um, they might be making 30 or 40% of what they could make at Facebook or Google, especially if they're really talented. Um, and then over time you're closing that gap because, um, you know, you, you, you get larger, you have more resources, et cetera. And I think that's probably, in my opinion, is the right framework to think about it. And I think you you don't want to get into a position where you're competing on cash too early, but then you also don't want to get in a position as you get larger where like you can't close great talent because they're saying, hey, this is a 200-person company. You should be able to pay me you know, roughly what I would get elsewhere. I agree with that. And I think the challenge here is it's so easy if you listen to this and you have folks that are building companies and they're getting some scale and you're starting your company out and you're going... Yeah, but I just can't hire somebody. It's just me and it's a vision, you know? And so there's a really different place that you're in when you're there, when you're at 20 employees, when you're at 50, when you're at 100, when you're at 150. I think the thing that if you go back in time, you know, when I joined Slide now 12 years ago, <laughs> makes me feel old, uh, we on average probably gave people starting salaries of 25% lower than market rate. Um, for what they would be making at kind of going to any standard company. I think that was about average. Like basically everybody came in and was taking a non-trivial pay cut. When I went to Square, we made people take a pay cut, but we wanted to overcomp people effectively with their equity rolled in. And at Scrib, now we're kind of, we're bigger than where we were when I was, when I first joined Square. And we think about it as we're getting closer and closer to what it's like to be a larger, more public, you know, company. And we have to think about compensation as competing for those same folks. They look at us and they say, well, I'm not getting a huge percentage of the company when I come in. It's not that it's 10 people or 20 people. So there's going to be some limit to the upside that I'm going to get. Even if my equity 5X is, you know, it's not like it can 100X or they don't think that it can 100X or they don't know if it will. Right. And so there's a little bit less of that bet. Uh, and there's a little bit more of the expectation of, hey, we're a 200 person company. I should be making market rate or around market rate for what I come in around. Um, I think this goes back to a comment I made earlier about rewarding people with work and ownership and responsibility. If you can talk to somebody and give them the ability to do the thing they want to do with the people that they want to do it with, with the flexibility and rope and room to do it, that buys you a lot. And then you can start to think about what am I able to pay somebody and what amount of equity am I able to give them? I always want to overcomp people on the equity side uh, for a couple of reasons. One is I think it's in their best interest. It becomes increasingly difficult for companies to give equity over time. It becomes much easier for you to give cash over time. And so if you believe in a company, if it ends up being successful, you are by definition better off optimizing for equity in 99% of cases 
because the thing that you're trading down is generally measured in 10,000, 20,000, maybe $30,000. And if that equity is effective and does a big return, that could be measured in millions of dollars of upside for you. So you ultimately have to look at your income. You have to look at how much money you have in the bank account, what your expenses are, you know, what the comp opportunity is and what is the delta in different scenarios. And so I would model out what's a low, medium and high outcome for where I think this company could go. What do I think this equity is worth? And how much do I care about that low, medium or high outcome versus how much do I care about the delta of $10,000 or $20,000 on my salary? If you can forego the ten or $20,000, then you can start to bet on, yeah, but if I can get twice the amount of equity or 30% more equity, what would that do in a good outcome? And, and I can be part of driving that outcome. It's certainly no guarantee, right? But there's plenty of people, when I would describe, I try to negotiate a $0 salary because I figured I was leaving Google. You know, I wasn't going to get paid more money to go to Square. I was going to get paid a lot less. Um, so I should fully bet on that, Right. But I was in a position to do that and turned out they wouldn't do that for me. And I got paid more like minimum wage and we picked a minimum floor. But I am so happy I made that decision. Hindsight's 2020. It's easy to say when the company works out. Um, but I'm really happy that I made that decision. I made that bet. The Delta, even if it was a hundred thousand or a hundred and fifty thousand dollars at that moment in my life, you know, that Delta for a year or two years versus the Delta of the amount of equity that I could get on the backside by optimizing for that is so significant. Right. And so I think you have to consider it for yourself when you're thinking through a comp package. And when you're thinking about making that available to other people, you have to consider the position there in their life and you have to be empathetic to it. But it's also reasonable to have a philosophy around saying, look, we just don't comp at these levels. And I think it behooves you to do that. The people that are optimizing for cash should go work at Google and Facebook and Netflix. Like there's always going to be somebody in market that can pay more cash than you can. If you're going to pay more cash than Netflix to somebody coming into your company, you're probably doing something wrong. And we're just super transparent about that with candidates. And I think that's a huge piece of it is like the worst thing you can do is act like you're paying like market rates or act like you're, you know, you're, you're like, no, no, this is a great offer. Like it's much better to say, Hey, here's our philosophy on cash comp. We don't want anyone to feel to be stressed about money. We don't want anyone to feel like they're, you know, having to make some massive sacrifice, but we are an early stage company. So there is going to be this opportunity cost. And then the piece on equity that I think most people don't think about and I think is incredibly important. And we try to go pretty above and beyond in this category at Omni is the basis points or the 49A or the current FMV are not the, they're, they're important, but they're not the, that's not the whole picture. And so things like liquidation preferences, these types of things that often people don't ask about actually can be a huge driver for the outcome of your equity package. And I think, especially in the environment now with what's happening at later stages in companies, those types of things can actually go from, you know, shift an outcome from being meaningful to being nothing uh, in certain cases. And so I think you know, a company, companies should be much more transparent about, Hey, not only is this, you know, either the basis points or the FMV and 49A and sort of what we would value this equity at. And here's these three scenarios, but you know, here's the, you know, liquidation stack or the preference stack of the company. And, you know, in these outcomes, you're actually, we've actually, you know, raised a lot of employee friendly rounds. And we think that's going to set you up to capture as much of this upside as possible. And I think that more companies should talk about that and more candidates should ask about it because it's, it's really important. And most people don't ever think about it. One more thing to just add to that, just because I've got the microphone, is uh, I'm amazed at how little people understand about equity and how few questions they ask and how they don't ask the right questions. I have had senior candidates at other companies who came in and we said, we're going to give you 10,000 options, whatever the number was. 
And they said, well, I think I deserve more. Another company is going to give me 15,000 options. And I said, well, what's, what are the value of those options? And they said, well, they're giving me 50% more. You guys need to give me 15,000 options. And people just fundamentally don't understand that. And if you're listening to this podcast and you're wondering, well, I don't understand that makes sense. I should get 15,000 options. You should absolutely 100% invest in learning a little bit more about equity and how it works. And it matters how many outstanding options there are and what their plans are around raising and what the pool looks like. And if there's going to be more dilution and what the preference stack is, like Ryan said, it's a very complicated issue. It is worth once you get your offers to make sure you're able to compare them apples to apples. You should be able to understand what percentage of the company you will own at this moment in time, what the plans are for the future that will change that percentage, and what the valuation of the company is using your own method for determining that and maybe being guided by the company and how they think about it. If you can do that, you can start to think about what your equity value is. You should also ask things like, how often do you do refresh grants? What do those typically look like? How have those gone down over the past? What is the strike price? What is the delta between the strike price and where the preferred investors just invested so that I understand the value of these options, right? There's a bunch of things that you need to understand to calculate what you expect the value to be. And you should look at all of these, divide them out over the vesting period to understand how that impacts your annual comp and think about comp overall. And then once you've done all that work, you should kind of throw it in the waistband. You have to understand that all of this is going to change. You can try to imagine what the future is going to look like four or five years from now. You can use that consistent methodology across multiple companies, but you have to understand that nothing is going to go exactly according to plan. But it's really helpful if you're going to use a framework to make sure that you're understanding all the components and you're weighing them together versus only weighing certain components, giving them the wrong coefficient, and then at the end of the day, knowing that all of this is going to change. Let's talk about goals. Let's talk about mission. How do you connect goals, mission, and vision? Yes, this is something we spent a lot of time on. When I joined the company which was just a year ago at Scribd, we had a really clear mission uh, in terms of having a broad vision of where we wanted to go, but we hadn't really translated that tactically into what the steps were that we needed to take to get there. One of the things that I noticed, particularly in working with engineers, was this desire to connect their day-to-day work to the steps that it would take to get to our end goal or end mission. And so we spent a lot of time working through this. I generally think about goals waterfalling down Uh, And I realize that you have to have different timelines for thinking through these things. So a mission or a vision statement generally is like a 10-year plus statement. You might revise it, but you're not revising that every year. You're really thinking about that as like, hey, I'm I'm shooting pretty far out there, right? This might be a 10-year or 20-year or 30-year mission uh, of what we're trying to do. And then you've got to think about tactically what are the major milestones between here and there that will allow us to get there? Um, so you need to think about those and you need to communicate them to your team. And then you have to ask the question, okay, what are each of my teams doing in order to get us to that next milestone that we're trying to accomplish together or to that next set of metrics or to that next threshold, whatever it is that you need to break through. And then lastly, you got to figure out how do I connect everyone's individual work to what it is that their team's trying to drive to get us towards that. And so what we do is we do a, a waterfall. We basically think about where is it that we're ultimately trying to get? What are the major blockers or milestones? Some of those are conditional market dynamics. You know, maybe you need to get a certain deal done or you need your partners to do X or Y or you need a certain number of users. Like it's just a state of the business that you need to be in. And some of those are things that you need to have built or solved for or figured out or achieved, whatever that might be. Defining those and understanding it, then you can start to say, okay, what is it that I really want to work towards? And so what we've done is we have our mission, our long-term mission, and then I create focus areas for the company. We do five 
uh, product focus areas and five operational focus areas. So the product focus areas are around product design and engineering. What are the areas of the company that we want to work on that we want to build? And these are specific milestones written out in words. You ideally want to make all of these smart goals so that they're smart and measurable, actionable. You know, you understand uh, that they're time bound, all the things around smart goal setting, but you may not always be able to do that. You may just say, we need to make a major leap forward in X and I don't know what that's going to be. But even then, you, you should try to define it. Like that means at least 10%, at least 20% improvement on X metric. The operational goals are around how you scale the company. What are the things that you need to do that need to be true about the company? And we set those on a yearly basis. So these focus areas, we set every 12 months. That means that when we look at what our teams are doing, the teams can set their goals and they can think about those as up to 12 months. It could be a two-week goal. It could be a three-month goal. It could be a one-month goal. It could be for the entire year. What progress do they want to make? And the most important thing is how are they going to measure the success of that? And then when you go into your team, uh, we've started to use a, a new system, uh, actually Jack Altman's company, Lattice, and we thought they've been really helpful. One of the things that's really different about their goal-setting tool is that it's dynamic in terms of the goal range. So I think it's a mistake to say we're going to set quarterly goals. The first conversation you will have with an engineer about a quarterly goal is, why is this a quarter long? Why is it not a month long? Why is it not a month and a half? Why is it not four months? How do you know this is going to take a quarter? And I understand that, right? That can be really frustrating. So what we do is we set goals. We do quarterly goal check-ins, but we set goals that can be any amount of time. Uh, and then what's cool in this tool is that you can add comments. So the idea is that you get rid of this monolithic goal setting process. And instead you say, hey, when I have my one-on-ones, we should be checking in every once in a while on where you're at with your goals, what progress has changed, what the status update is. You can edit your goals. You can change them and say, hey, we decided to make a hard left. We're not doing that thing anymore. Let's delete that goal. Let's add a new goal. But you start to think about goals as just a framework for how you set specific things you want to accomplish and measure them. And you do it over a specific time frame. You write it down somewhere and you hold yourself and your team accountable. I think this is the best way to do it. You can then use these goals as one metric that informs performance reviews. So if you're going to do performance reviews and if you're evaluating somebody's compensation or evaluating promoting them, it is so helpful to have a system where you said, hey, we set these specific goals, which we define together. This is the progress that you made against those. This is what I'm expecting, or this is what I would need to see from you to think that you're performing at the next level. So I think all of these things come together and enabling you to run the company more effectively. But one of the biggest feedback points that we got is, hey, I really want to understand how my work is connected to what we're trying to do long term. I think we've created clarity in the last six months in particular where people say, I understand why I'm working on the thing that I'm working on. I understand why we're doing the thing that we're doing. And I understand how that's connected to the next milestone that gets us closer towards our mission. I think that's ultimately what you want to do. Do you have any script plugs or for people who want to learn more, where can they find you online or? Sure. Uh, so Scribd is an unlimited reading subscription service. So it's like Netflix for books. We give you access to everything of the written word, everything from audiobooks to ebooks, magazines, news articles, and more uh, for $8.99 a month. And I've uh, been around about 12 years and lots of content over a million books. You should definitely check it out. And you can find me on Twitter at JaredSF. I'm not nearly as prolific as Ryan, uh, but you can find me there uh, or other places on the web. If you're taking chances on people, sometimes they're not going to work out. How do you think about how to let people go, when to let people go? Yeah, it's a good question. One one thing that uh, a mentor of mine told me a long time ago was uh, that it should never be a surprise. You really, you really actually don't want anything related to performance to be a surprise. People should have a sense if they're performing well and going to get a raise or promoted. And people should also have a sense if they're not performing well. And so I'm a big believer in having, like, if you if you sense that something is a little bit off, just very quickly 
having a conversation, very direct conversation about that. Um, I think that actually saves a lot of headache because like 50% of the time it was a miscommunication or a misunderstanding and it's corrected 50% of the time. It's a real problem. And you then have to start to sort of take corrective action and you have to think, okay, how can I actually help this person level up or, um, or is this sort of a systemic issue that we actually just need to part ways. And so generally I think you, you want to have that check in and then check in, you know, every couple of days or weekly after that. And then if you find that it's, it's the thing, situation is not improving or, um, and this is all for like performance related. There's other reasons why you might want to move more quickly, obviously, but for, for a sort of typical like performance related, Hey, I don't know if this, this is the right fit. Um, I think you want to have that direct conversation. And then I think you want to, uh, you know, check in really regularly and really quickly and try to try to get a lot of signal on, is this getting better? Or is it getting worse? And then I've actually, in, in most cases, I think you actually, uh, if you handle it well, you generally get to the position where the other person arrives at the same conclusion as you do. So either they arrive at the conclusion of like, Hey, I think I can actually level up and I think I can actually, you know, get this back on track and, and deliver a lot of, of value in this role where I'm supposed to be, or they, they sort of, you know, come to the realization like, Hey, I don't, I don't think I'm actually going to, going to be able to get there. And I don't think this is a good fit. And that doesn't happen in every case. And sometimes you have to sort of, you know, be a little bit more direct and aggressive with that, but. Um, you know, I think it's, it's great managers usually, um, make it incredibly clear, you know, how, how you're doing and, and there's no surprises on that front. And so I think when it comes to firing or letting go of employees, you really want to ensure that you have some sort of process that, um, you know, that, that doesn't leave people surprised or, and gives them a shot to kind of recover. Let's talk about performance reviews. What makes sort of a great performance review process from a, from just a good one? Yeah. I mean, I, I also want to endorse Lattice. Um, I have no affiliation with them, but Jack's amazing. And, um, we use it as Omni, at Omni as, uh, as also Scrib does. We just, we actually just, just implemented performance reviews. So we just got to the size where I think, you know, we wanted to standardize it and we had, a, we had a pretty good feedback culture. I think, um, uh, managerially where a lot of like managers were giving feedback to direct reports, direct reports felt like they could give feedback to managers. Um, and I think the biggest thing about performance reviews, I would say, if I had to say it in a sentence, I would say you want to prioritize the people over the process. So I think if you're, if you're trying to do performance reviews because you need to check a box that you want to tell the board you did performance reviews and that you want to be able to base some arbitrary raise cycle off that performance review, you're almost definitely just going to leave everyone frustrated, feel like they're dealing with bureaucracy process for the sake of process. If you think about it from the perspective of how can we use these as a tool to help our team level up, help our team get authentic feedback about how they're performing, help our managers get feedback about how they're managing, that they might not get otherwise, and use it as a forcing function for those conversations to happen, it can be incredibly valuable. And so performance reviews at Omni are very, very feedback centric and they're, they're very, um, very relational. And, um, we basically do a kickoff, uh, sort of one on one kickoff with you and your manager where you sort of a very informal conversation where you talk about the last six months, um, talk about how things are going, talk about wins, losses. Um, and then you, over the next week, get feedback from your peers, your manager writes feedback for you. And then, um, we actually have the, ma- each manager actually goes over, gets the feedback a week later, gets the feedback. And then the next one-on-one actually goes through the feedback with their direct report. And so you don't get this like blast of feedback that you have to like sit by yourself and read and like, you know, question and all the insecurities come out. You actually have a partner, a manager who can go through it with you who can kind of coach you through it, talk about strengths, talk about weaknesses. And so I think that works, it works pretty well. We're going to iterate on it some more, but so you sort of end the cycle by your manager going over feedback with you, you kind of getting your performance feedback from your manager. Um, but it feels like a much more, uh, relational experience and it feels much more oriented around helping you reach peak performance than it does about like checking a box for some, you know, function of people ops or whatever, where it is at a lot of companies. And how do you think about the cadence of, of meetings in general? How often are you doing one-on-ones and, and with who and, and what cadence are you doing weekly all hands? Are you doing 
certain monthly or quarterly meeting? Like, how do you think about what sort of like infrastructure or, uh, and, and on what cadence you, yeah. you implement? So I'm a big believer in, uh, every company on that front is going to be very different, but I'm a big believer in prioritizing like clarity and communication. And so the question I would ask is like, does your team know what's going on? Are they well-informed? Are they motivated? Do, does, do people generally understand why decisions are being made and how? And if they do, then whatever you're doing is probably working well. If not, you almost definitely just need to double whatever you're doing. And so this is something that I, uh, I think I learned from actually Dan Romero at Coinbase, um, said this thing where he said, we basically realized we had to repeat the company's mission and vision every single time we did every single me- all hands meeting every single week. And it was like this thing where it almost felt insane if you had been there for three years. Cause you're like, why do we keep talking about this? But like, you just have to kind of like, that's how, how repetitive you need to be to sort of make sure that everyone's fully bought in on it. And so we do all hands every two weeks. Um, I do one-on-ones with all my directs every single week. Um, I have a few one-on-ones that are bi-weekly with like, um, you know, HR or accounting or different people. And like how many that. directs do you have? Uh, I have five direct reports. And so I'm a big believer in like, in one-on-ones and investing in making those great and, um, you know, asking for feedback, having open feedback channels. And I think one thing that's important is that asking for feedback is not enough. You have to create an environment and a relationship where people feel like it's safe to give feedback. And so you'll hear a lot of managers say like, Oh, I asked for feedback every single time and I never get any feedback. It's like, well, that's not a, that's not a positive signal. That's a negative signal. Um, and so I think you want to figure out how you can create that culture where there's enough trust built up where people feel like they can deliver that feedback. Um, and you can also deliver the feedback to them. Yeah. Let's go back to execs for a second. When is the right place in the company's life cycle? When do you have to hire execs and when's the best time to hire execs? And then also, how are you, you talk about if when you are external, you try to get the best person in the world. How are you getting the, like, what, what is your sort of non-obvious principle of recruiting those people when Hey, every other, not only are big companies trying to get them, but every other startup that is just as promising or, or just as flashy is also trying to get that and offering the same thing or better. Yeah. It's really hard. So recruiting execs is probably one of the most underrated, like just difficult things to do as a CEO or COO. And I think especially right now, specific roles like VP of product, um, VP of growth, VP of engineering are just very, very difficult. And I think that you have to figure out, uh, you know, how can you not only filter for candidates that are going to be successful in the role, but filter for candidates that are going to be drawn to the opportunity. And I think it's fairly easy actually to find candidates you think will be good in the role because you can figure out some list of companies or skill sets or whatever, and you can find people that match that. But finding people that are going to be drawn to the role is much more difficult. And so um, one of the things that we've found is that finding people that are passionate. So Omni is a marketplace uh, where you can you can basically rent anything you want to rent in your city. You can rent it whenever you need it uh, for a day, week, month, whatever. And we we found that finding people that were really passionate about marketplaces and love two-sided marketplaces is actually a really strong indicator they're going to be interested in Omni. And people that have never done a marketplace before, um, there's in some cases some cognitive load of like, hey, do I want to dive into a marketplace? There's supply and demand. And everyone knows it's really powerful once it achieves scale, but it's really difficult to get off the ground, et cetera. And so I think... If you can find, in our case, when we were recruiting a VP of product, we said, hey, we want to find someone who's already worked at a marketplace. Um, and so uh, our VP of product now is fantastic. Uh, he worked at Hotel Tonight and Yelp uh, and Peerspace and basically been doing marketplaces for a decade. And uh, that was an example of, of finding someone who, who already had a lot of alignment before we even started the conversation. And then once we found out that he was going to be a fantastic fit for the role, it was much easier to actually close him and get him excited because he was already really drawn to the opportunity. Yeah. And how about the opposite then when you're trying to recruit the undiscovered talent? One thing we both love doing is, is putting people in business. What are, what is something sort of non-obvious you're looking for when you're first validating, you know, first giving someone their shot and, and like, 
when you're, when you're first giving someone their shot and nobody else has yet, like what, what are you looking for that is sort of distinct? Yeah. So I'm looking for some sort of spark on the insight analysis strategy, some sort of interesting, like almost, uh, intellectual, like insight into something. So some sort of spark that, that is, um, unique or that I haven't heard before, particularly for someone that doesn't have a lot of context. So if they're, they could be talking about another business. I could see someone on Twitter that, that I know has no context on Airbnb and, and tweet something really intelligent about Airbnb experiences or something. Or it could be about our business. They could email me and say, Hey, I was thinking about this. And I, I, um, I thought that you might want to think about, um, this opportunity. And so that, that is a really strong signal. And then the second signal is like just pure effort and grit and people that want to come in and just work really, really hard. And so. Those two things, if you can find both of those. And the first one is actually generally you actually see it and you actually don't have to pull it out of them because the best people are going to actually proactively share that. Um, the other one is actually much harder to screen for and you have to actually dig into like, um, you know, I, I talked to a candidate randomly that for an internship this summer who was like, yeah, I, I run, I run a marathon in every state in the US. And which some people might look at that and go like, that's completely has no bearing on whether or not you can succeed at a startup. But I look at that and go, wow, you have, there's a long list of things that are translate your incredible work ethic. You have this sort of goal oriented mind where you thought, okay, I want to run a state marathon in every single state of the U S you've also done this on a relatively short time horizon. All these things are really interesting to me. And so I think if you can figure out things as you dig in with a candidate to screen for that, um, if you have both of those, I think you're in good shape. Yeah. And it's interesting because when you're taking undiscovered talent, sometimes it's literally because they're young and maybe you're the first person to see them. Other times it's because people have sort of written them off maybe. When, when it's the latter, um, or written them off or haven't pursued them, but they're sort of known entities and some, they're a bit older. I, I don't know. How do you determine, like, when do you take a chance on someone who's a somewhat of a known quantity or, you know, isn't super young, but just hasn't been discovered in that way? Yeah, I, I don't care. The age is completely irrelevant right. to me. So I think, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why someone might have never been set up to thrive and you can be the one that creates an environment that they can thrive in. It's certainly easy. I mean, there's certainly a much more typical story of someone, you know, graduating school or dropping out of school and wants to break into tech, but I don't think it has anything. There's, there's no, nothing age related that I think would, would impact that in any way. Yeah. Um, when you look back at your, you know, last week at Omni, two weeks at Omni, last month of Omni, where, how do you sort of get a sense of where you should be pie charting your time in terms of what gives you the most leverage to do your job well? The first filter would be, is there anything on fire? Is there anything that's going really bad right now or anything that could, um, like Keeper Boy has this, this concept as a CEO of like, you're trying to basically figure out, is it a, a cold that's actually fatal or something that looks fatal that's actually a cold? And I think, um, you know, if you've, if you found something that you think is fatal, whether it, it, you know, is sort of obvious or non-obvious, that's, that goes to priority number one. Um, and so I would say about once a month or once every, once every, once twice a month, there's something like that where I end up spending a week or, uh, you know, several days just totally focused on. And then the other side of it is, okay, what are all the opportunities and, uh, resourcing time against those opportunities. And so we're gearing up, uh, for a big product launch in a few months and have a bunch of news to share there soon. And so a lot of my time is resourcing against what are the linchpins for that going well? Um, and how can I de-risk that as much as possible? And then, you know, the things that are going well, how do we double down and keep resourcing against this? Yeah. Let's have our process. When did you introduce it? How to make it high leverage? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, it's hard. Um, at an early stage company, I think in general, you want to fight the urge to implement a bunch of process. Um, I think it slows you down. And I think if there's like a blanket rule, it would be okay. Don't, don't just always gravitate to adding more process into things. And process in this context is like, uh, you know, a ton of structure around how things have to happen or, um, a ton of, uh, things that maybe like slow things down to get a bunch of stakeholders checked off on or whatever. And so I think about it as, as process is basically reducing the variance 
of outcomes of a certain thing. And so if the, if the, the worst downside scenario is significantly worse in magnitude than the best upside scenario, it's probably a good idea to have some process. So a good example is like most things related to HR, comp, performance reviews, like having process in place there is really smart because the worst downside scenario there is like pretty bad. Uh, and the upside of like someone, you know, having no process and someone coming up with some super innovative way to do a performance review because you let every manager do it however they want is like, and maybe that helps you a little bit, but that's not actually where you should be spending your time, in my opinion. Now, on the flip side of that would be something like, how do we ship um, iterations or tests into our onboarding flow? Or how do we ship tests to our retention strategy? There's a, a really good chance, like there's a, there's an enormous amount of upside by making it really easy for people to just shoot tests in and try different things and making that a really lightweight flow without having a ton of sign-off and process in between it. Um, and obviously, you want to make sure people don't take the site down. And there's a sign-off process there, but you want to make it really easy and lightweight for smart, intelligent people who understand your users to test things that might meaningfully move important metrics like sign-up conversion or retention. And so in that case, you would actually want to remove as much process as possible. You want to have downside protection, but you want to make it as easy as possible and as quick as possible for those people to do that. And so that's the framework that I share with our team. And so I think that what that does is that ensures that when you do have process, it's high leverage because you're trying to ensure that you know the outcomes are, are are sort of compressed and there's not anything really bad or anything really good. Um, but then there's also times where you can sort of strategically remove process or make it really easy because you want to see if you can capture the insight that's going to drive a huge change in the business. Ryan Jarrett, thank you for putting on a master clinic uh, of all things COO and, and company building. Uh, for people who want to learn more about Omni and, and follow your work, Ryan, where can you point them and any Omni plugs? Yeah. Uh, so Omni is, uh, it's a way to rent anything in your city, uh, make it really easy to access anything by the day, week or month. So if you need a bike or drone or camera or household gear or anything like that, you can get it on Omni. And, uh, I am at Delk on Twitter, which is probably the best way to, uh, to reach me. Um, and we're going to be launching some new cities and unveiling a lot of new products this year. So I'd love to chat about that. If anyone wants to reach out, I'm always happy to chat. Awesome. I'm a proud, uh, Omni investor and, uh, someone tweeted me recently and said that they joined the company because I retweeted one of your, uh, your job Boom. postings. So I hope that someone listens to this podcast, joins Omni and then tweets at me. Boom. So I get Thanks, Eric. With, uh, Ryan and Tom. Thank you so much. This has been great. Thanks, Ryan Jared. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 